0: Welcome to The Freak Show, fellow freaks.
1: I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope.
0: I'm Sarah Hartman.
1: And this is...
0: Murder Coaster. Coaster.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you won't hear me say this often, but I'm glad the subject of today's episode is dead. And it's not because... He was a sadistic rapist, serial killer, pedophile and cannibal that became buddies with Ted Bundy in prison and would joyfully compare notes with him on just how rotten and maggot infested a corpse could become before it lost its sexual appeal. No, and it wasn't because he was a cop who abused his powers by using his badge and uniform To lure innocent young girls to their deaths in the florida everglades and it's not because he would take vacations to third world countries where he thought his money and entitlement as an american would allow him to easily get away with crimes of violence and sex no it's not that nor is it that he was a disgusting creep obsessed with excrement and urine A truly self-absorbed asshole who only thought of himself and taunted the families of his victims and refused to tell them where their loved one's remains were or what had become of them. And it's not that he actually wrote all his sick fantasies and crimes down in lurid detail and had the guts to call himself an actual writer because of these immature scribblings. No, the reason I'm glad he's dead is because if Gerard John Schaefer was alive today, he'd probably sue me for saying what I just did. That's
0: right. He probably would have. Hmm. Gerard John Schaefer loved to sue people. If a reporter or true crime author called him a serial killer, he'd sue them, even though... He himself bragged about being one of America's worst serial killers and even wrote lurid confessions to his prison girlfriend, claiming he had a kill count of over 80.
1: But because Gerard had only been convicted of killing two women and them at the same time, he technically wasn't a convicted serial killer and was able to claim slander, if one would call him so.
0: He even set up author Patrick Kendrick, who had interviewed him many times. Schaefer had an acquaintance pose as a college journalist and contact Patrick, telling him he wanted to interview Schaefer, but was intimidated. Hoping to get Kendrick to say something salacious about the character of Schaefer, Kendrick took the bait and wrote back, There's no reason to be intimidated. Schaefer is now a middle-aged, pale, and doughy wimp who preyed on victims that were physically and psychologically weaker than him. Schaefer sued for libel, in the amount of half a million dollars. At first, Kendrick thought it was a prank one of his friends was pulling on him, but soon learned that the lawsuit was very real. It cost him tens of thousands of dollars, and the book he was writing on Schaefer ended up being delayed by well over two decades.
1: But, as I said... This motherfucker's dead now, so he ain't suing nobody. And to give credit where credit is due, while we did a lot of research on this case ourselves, including finding police reports and job internship reviews, which we will read for you, and we also read writings from the killer himself, much on that to come. But we also relied on Ryan Green's book, Pop Killer, the deviant deputy who kidnapped, raped, and killed. So buckle up, Buttercup. It's going to be a tough ride. Let's get on with the disgusting life, revolting times, and brutal death of narcissistic scumbag of the century, Gerard John Schaefer.
0: Oh, good title for him. This guy Hmm. really got under my skin.
1: Narcissistic scumbag of the century. Here we go.
0: Here we go. Gerard John Schaefer was born on March 25th, 1946, to Gerard Sr. and Doris, young parents who had just recently started dating and only married because Doris had become pregnant. While married when he was born, Gerard Jr. never got over the fact that he was technically an illegitimate child. It's an issue that would plague him his entire life.
1: To which I say, get the fuck over it. What's the big deal? Ted Bundy, who later became pals with Gerard in prison, was also obsessed over the fact that he was a bastard Different times, different stigmas, I guess. But as we're going to see, Gerard seems to have a crazy conglomeration of traits that we also see in other serial killers. BTK in particular. We'll get to those later, though.
0: In a desperate attempt to get away from Doris's controlling and religious family, And Gerard Sr. moved the family to Atlanta, Georgia, when Gerard Jr. was just a toddler.
1: Atlanta, what a town. Despite the fact that Gerard Sr. was, by all recollections, a raging and violent drunk, and the young couple were constantly fighting, they went on to have two more children, both daughters. It's said
0: that Gerard Sr. saw his son as the root of all his troubles, but adored his daughters. Gerard eventually caught on to this, and before he was even school age, Gerard would dress up in his mother's clothing and pretend to be a girl, hoping to please his drunken father. But, alas, This had quite the opposite effect, as you might imagine, in 1950s America. And Gerard Jr. instead received sound beatings for his efforts.
1: Gerard Jr. attended Marist Academy in Atlanta, where he did well academically, but not socially. Instead of playing sports like the other boys, he'd be busy playing out death fantasies with his sisters. Because of his daydreaming, he was often bullied by the other male students. When his father became aware of this, he blamed Gerard and used violence as a parenting tool, trying to beat the quote-unquote sissy out of him.
0: Because of his elaborate death fantasy games, Gerard was seen as a morbid kid in school. And though aware of the revulsion, these games often evoked in the other children. He simply couldn't stop himself from playing them.
1: Edmund Kemper, another notorious serial killer whom we'll surely cover at some point, he used to do the same thing with his sisters, too. They'd play a game called Electric Chair, where Kemper would pretend to be a death row inmate and his sisters would carry out his execution.
0: Gerard was around 12 when he first began stealing women's underwear, taking them into the woods, and wearing them during elaborate fantasies. Gerard loved the forest. There was something about the isolation, the quiet, the trees, and the leaves. Soon, he was experimenting with bondage. Even though his young mind was unable to comprehend what he was doing. Gerard stole some rope, and wearing women's panties, he'd tie himself to a tree, looping the rope around his neck so that he was able to choke himself to near unconsciousness while masturbating, a dangerous practice he'd innocently stumbled upon called autoerotic asphyxiation.
1: Actually, uh, accidentally kills a lot of people, so be careful out there. Gerard's love of the forest also spiked an in interest in trapping and hunting. He'd read books in the library about how to set up snares and trap animals. Books that, oddly enough, he was too scared to check out. And I don't get that. In the 1950s, you'd think these were, like, manly things to do. That would impress his father, right? Anyway, after a lot of initial failures, he was finally able to set a successful snare and capture him a bunny rabbit. So cute, right? I bet you're thinking he took it home, made a pet out of it, and learned to nurture and love a fellow creature. But you'd be wrong. Very, very wrong. Because as we'll see, Gerard Schaefer was a sadistic and cruel man who took great pleasure from the pain of other creatures, even as a child.
0: Yeah, we don't get to talk about a lot of cute stuff here. I wasn't wasn't expecting it to go that way. It's
1: murder coaster, not cute coaster.
0: Uh, I love I would love cute coaster though. <laughs> <you> do that. <laughs> All right, but it's murder coaster. So when Gerard. Attempted to touch the rabbit, it bit him. And that threw Gerard into a fit of rage. And he stomped the rabbit to death, crushing its head. It was then that he learned he enjoyed dominating things weaker than him. A month later, he caught another rabbit. And this time, he had everything perfectly prepared using sticks stones, and his pocket knife, Gerard tortured the poor creature to death.
1: He loved it. He had never been so thrilled in his entire life. Torturing and killing small animals was even better than tying himself up in women's underwear and choking himself. Gerard had found something truly special. But like the autoerotic asphyxiation, it was something that had to be kept secret that only he could know about. And he retreated ever deeper into himself. Now, barely even speaking to his mother and his sisters.
0: It was around this time in 1960 that the family moved again, this time to Fort Lauderdale, Florida.
1: Spring break. woo Here... He attended St. Thomas Aquinas High, where he discovered something. His weird sullenness and fantasy obsessions, which had been seen as weird by the kids back in Georgia who knew him as a sad, daydreaming, death-obsessed loner, were seen by the teenage girls in Fort Lauderdale as mysterious and cool. I guess they were projecting some kind of rebel-without-a-cause James Dean thing onto him.
0: Gerard quickly became obsessed with his next-door neighbor, Lee Hanline, peeping into her windows and even stealing her underwear off the clothesline, oblivious to his transgressions and completely misreading his detachment from humanity as shyness. She found him handsome and his stilted ways old-fashioned. The two would play tennis together, which Gerard greatly enjoyed.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he loved hammering the ball as hard as he could directly at her and watching her squeal and dart away. He also liked watching her sweat. And when she'd brush up against the net, he would imagine her all tied up and struggling to get free. He liked playing tennis with her a lot. Oh,
0: cringe. (laughs) And then there was fellow student, Sandra London, who boldly approached Gerard, letting her interest be known.
1: Sandra London was certainly bold. And remember that name because she's going to come back into this story much, much later.
0: The two dated for a while. One night, in a makeout session, the normally docile and disinterested Schaefer snapped and began tearing at her clothes violently. She pushed him away and demanded that he stop. It wasn't that she wasn't ready to move forward with the relationship in a sexual manner. But it was that the ferocity he displayed had scared her. He had ripped her clothes.
1: But Schaefer saw this rejection as a sign that he could never let his true nature be seen. And though Sandra was still very much interested in him, he formally ended the relationship after ignoring her for days. It appears at this point, Having sex with willing girls didn't interest him enough to pursue a relationship. In fact, he would later write that the only way he could climax while making love to a woman was to imagine her hanging from a noose and writhing with death throes.
0: Wow, what a reason to ghost somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Gerard was frustrated being in a suburban neighborhood, without any nearby forests. Forests were his borderland between reality and fantasy. Forests were a place where he could delve into his self-bondage, autoerotic asphyxiation, and torture of small animals.
1: But don't fret, for this was all remedied when he received his driver's license. Now, mobile he was able to drive deeply into secluded forests of mangroves where he could engage in his sick daydreams. Wearing Lee's stolen underwear, he'd tie himself up in complex tangles of rope and while choking himself, fantasize about abducting his neighbor Lee and bringing her to the forest to rape and strangle.
0: He snared and tortured animals even bought a rifle, and obtained a hunting license. But his fantasy life slowly became dull and routine, and Schaefer felt he needed to keep the thrill alive.
1: Later, Gerard would tell a psychiatrist that he would take a machete, wander out into the secluded fields of farmers under the cover of night, and hack the head off a cow then engage in sex acts with the animal's corpse. He said these acts made him feel invincible. Now, my wonderful co-host, Sarah here, as I've mentioned often, is a licensed psychotherapist. In past episodes, we've talked about how parts of the discredited McDonald triad do hold small elements of truth, in particular with animal torture. We've talked about Richard Chase's obsession with butchering rabbits and puppies, drinking their blood and making smoothies from their entrails, and about Pazuzu's magical thinking when engaged in the ritual sacrifice of birds and rabbits. But hacking the head off a creature as large as a cow and then fucking it? This seems like new territory to me care to opine, Sarah?
0: All right, here we go. (laughs) It's evident that Schaefer struggled with insecurity over the circumstances of his birth and feelings of rejection by his father. Early on, he appears to have processed his emotions through self-harm, Self-harm is a symptom characterized by difficulty managing complex emotions such as feelings of worthlessness, shame, depression, rejection, self-hatred, or even questions about gender or sexual identity. Self-harm is motivated by a desire to experience a distraction Or relief from these internal struggles. It's also a way for the sufferer to punish themselves and experience a sense of control or even just to feel something. Gerard's self loathing also led to resentment of others, and eventually, turning his emotions onto himself was no longer sufficient to foster a sense of control. As such, Schaefer's behavior progressed to externalizing his rage and exercising power and control over other living creatures. He was not only killing these animals, but violating their remains to help himself feel superior, which was important because of his deep seated fears of inadequacy that started in childhood. And As anticipated, Gerard eventually progresses to torturing, violating, and killing human women for very similar and arguably more literal reasons. But killing livestock certainly has lower stakes as far as the potential repercussions go. And so he starts here. This isn't the first time that we've seen one of our killers slaughter cows. If you recall, Richard Chase also killed a cow. And when the tribal police at Pyramid Lake found him covered in blood, they discovered that the blood he had bathed in, as well as the liver in the bucket in his car, were both bovine. However, I don't think the type of animal is relevant in this case only Schaefer's underlying motivations for acting out in that way.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, so for the first time in his life, Gerard began hanging out with other guys. And to his surprise, many of them too were filled with lust. And many also saw women as nothing more than pieces of meat to be used for pleasure, just as Gerard did. It was through them that he began to hear rumors of a girl named Cindy who would, quote unquote, go all the way. Now eager for sexual experience, Gerard tracked her down and wooed her. The two soon became a couple.
0: Cindy, ostracized by the rumors, was just happy to get some attention and gave in to Gerard's advances. At first, They just engaged in the normal groping and quick, awkward intercourse of inexperienced teenagers. But Gerard was soon introducing a much darker element to their liaisons. Gerard would take her out to the mangroves, where she would let him engage in his rape fantasies. He would chase her through the forest, capture her, and rip all of her clothing from her before engaging in rough, violent sex. This went on until Cindy could take it no more. And she called the relationship off.
1: Then Gerard graduated high school and decided to become a, wait for it, wait for it. A Catholic priest.
0: Oh,
1: (laughs) First, he wants to be a priest. Then he ends up becoming a cop. What is up with scumbags who long to be priests and cops? I guess it's dominance, power, control, one spiritually, the other physically. I don't know. But the Catholic Church, bless their hearts, somehow saw through Gerard's godly desire to help lost souls and bluntly told him, He wasn't going to make a good fit before rejecting his application.
0: Enraged by this rejection, Gerard renounced his faith, and he never attended church again.
1: I think this really goes to show just how much faith Gerard had to begin with. And it really exemplifies his narcissistic nature. It was never about Catholicism at all. It was always all about him. It would always be just about Gerard John Schaefer. He was a true narcissist. In fact, he would go on to become the narcissistic scumbag of the century. <laughs> Maybe uh, Sarah can give us a clinical definition of narcissism and how it relates to both psychopathy and sociopathy.
0: Yeah, let's talk about this narcissistic scumbag of the century award so we can really understand why we're giving this to him. (laughs) The word narcissism has its roots in Greco-Roman mythology. It alludes to the story of a handsome young man named Narcissus who was punished by the gods for his arrogance. The gods cursed him to fall in love with his own reflection, and, as it could never love him back, Narcissus died tormented and alone. Narcissism, as a colloquial term, has been used to criticize intense feelings of self-obsession, unearned superiority, selfishness, and even auto-erotic behavior. As a clinical personality trait, narcissism can be viewed on a spectrum with healthy self-esteem at one end and a pathological state on the other. In this new age of technology, in large part thanks to social media and self-help bloggers, the word narcissism has currently become a catch-all term to describe pretty much all domestic abusers. But for our purposes today, we're going to discuss narcissistic personality disorder as a DSM-5 diagnosis. Classified as a cluster B personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder is more prevalent in males than females and tends to be seen in conjunction with other psychiatric disorders. Symptoms can look similar to those of three other personality disorders. Those are antisocial personality disorder, known in layman's terms as sociopathy, borderline personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. So professionals should exercise care in making a diagnosis. In order for someone to receive a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, an individual must demonstrate at least five of the following nine criteria. So think about Gerard Schaefer as we read this. All right. All right. Here we go. So these are the nine criterion.
1: How many do I fit?
0: Think about that as we read it, too. (laughs) Well, introspection. A grandiose sense. Of self-importance. Check. Of <laughs> fixation with fantasies. Of infinite success, control, brilliance, beauty, or idyllic love. Check. A credence <laughs> that he or she or they is extraordinary and exceptional and can only be understood by or should connect with. Other extraordinary or important people or institutions.
1: Check. That's why I like you.
0: Oh, okay. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> a desire for unwarranted admiration. Check. A sense of entitlement.
1: Check. So we're at five already. Oh definitely. I think, I think you're in narcissist.
0: trouble. <laughs> um interpersonally oppressive behavior
1: I don't even know what those fancy words mean
0: oh, okay I don't feel like that sounds like you no form of empathy definitely oh, not well. you definitely not nice.
1: me
0: resentment of others or a conviction that others are resentful of them
1: mm, check <laughs> <laughs> am I being honest I don't know <laughs>
0: A display of egotistical and conceited behaviors or attitudes,
1: oh, fuck, yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> and I will go on to add the disclaimer too that uh, these um these little check boxes also must impact your life in a negative way, pervasively.
1: well, they've done nothing but be a positive thing for me. so
0: <laughs> all right, all right, we'll we'll look at this very uh. <laughs> Very leniently, <laughs> developmental factors that make diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder more likely include genetic factors, as well as rejection as a child and fragile ego during childhood. And I think we're seeing that's definitely the case here.
1: With with Gerard, not me. With Gerard, <laughs> we're I, talking about Gerard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just wanted to make sure, though.
0: It's not a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> and people with narcissistic personality disorder tend to have trouble handling criticism. Uh, maybe they might try to aggressively sue other people for defamation. Um, and they can become angry when they don't receive special recognition. They have problems connecting to others. People with narcissistic personality disorder tend to belittle others or direct rage against them to feel superior. And I think here we're looking at Schaefer's entire attitude towards women. Um, they sometimes have trouble controlling behavior or adapting to stress and will avoid situations where they might fail, like rage quitting Catholicism if you don't become a priest and struggling with secret feelings of inadequacy. Shame, humiliation, and fear of being exposed as a failure. All of this seems pretty applicable to Gerard, honestly.
1: Absolutely. So he is definitely a a narcissist. And uh, as we'll see, he's also quite a scumbag. So uh, while he'd been full of self-loathing as a child, his ego blossomed and swelled as a young adult. And he began to think of himself in grandiose terms. He attended community college receiving an associate degree in business administration, but this bored him. It wasn't grand enough for a man like him. He felt his true purpose may lie in the dark fantasies he'd had since child. And he began stalking women and honing his hunting instincts.
0: On October 2nd, 1966, Nancy Leishner and Pamela Nader were wandering around the lake at Alexander Springs, both bored and irritated. Their boyfriends had gone scuba diving, leaving them alone for hours, with nothing to do but skulk around, angrily complaining that their inconsiderate bows hadn't even left them any beer to enjoy on this hot Florida day. Little did they know they were actually being hunted.
1: Gerard Schaefer was obsessed with what he called doing doubles or abducting two women at once and having one watch bound as he had his devious way with the other. Having an audience significantly increased the erotic thrill and became a deep part of both his fantasy life and his crimes. He's quoted as saying, doing doubles is far more difficult than doing singles. But on the other hand, it also puts one in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some lively discussions about which of the victims will get to be killed first. Yes, that is an actual quote from the narcissistic scumbag of the century.
0: Having stalked the girls and listened to their conversations. And Gerard approached them, telling them he was leaving the lake and he could give them a ride to town if they wanted. The girls laughed over the thought of abandoning their boyfriends and thought maybe leaving them would show them how it felt to be left all alone. And so the two agreed, jumping in the back seat of Gerard's car Giggling, talking to each other, not even noticing that Gerard wasn't taking them to town at all, but deep into the Everglades.
1: When Gerard stopped the car in a dark forest of mangroves, the girls wondered where they were and what was happening as a grinning Gerard hopped out and went to the trunk where he retrieved rope and a hunting rifle.
0: Leveling his rifle at them, he forced the now hysterical girls from the vehicle and marched them into the mangrove forest along the way, Gerard fed them nonsense about how he was in the CIA and just bringing them to a safe place for their own protection. They obviously didn't buy any of this.
1: Claiming to be in the CIA would be one of Gerard's many go-to's when trying to manipulate people. Well, he bound the girl's hands behind their back, then tied Nancy to a large tree, instructing her to watch and see what was coming to her next. He then ripped Pamela's clothes from her and savagely raped her, staring at Nancy the whole time, telling her if she didn't watch, he'd poke her eyes out. As the rape grew more and more violent, he eventually wrapped his hands around Pamela's neck and strangled the life from her, climaxing as her body shuddered in death.
0: Delicately kissing the dead girl's bloated tongue, Gerard Schaefer smiled up at Nancy. Bound there to the tree, with a noose around her neck and asked her if she was ready for her turn. Ooh,
1: Uh, man, that was incredibly horrible. And now maybe we need a change in direction. So the number one song of October 1966 was 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. Oh, no. (laughs) You know what's coming. I know
0: you're going to do it. Why
1: don't I sing a few bars? Too many teardrops for one heart to be crying. Too many teardrops for one heart to carry on. Well, that
0: song is now irrevocably paired with that mental image for me. So thanks. That's a great song, man. It was a great song.
1: I think Now it's horrible. It if I'm, if I'm, I think they do.
0: Oh, God, you killed it. Like, it's dead. <laughs> okay, that just happened. And fearing that he might be drafted into the Vietnam War, which was raging at this point, Gerard went to a psychiatrist, hoping to weasel his way out of it. Gerard told the psychiatrist... he was hearing voices telling him to kill this is called a command hallucination by the way in case anybody wants the psych term Mm. Mm -hmm. um and his doctor was actually unfazed because he didn't see how that could be a downside for a soldier and uh yeah right i mean i guess right very indicative of the attitude of the time um and so gerard told him how he also enjoyed Killing and torturing small animals. And again, his psychiatrist was nonplussed. But then, then Gerard told him, gasp, shock, that he liked wearing women's panties and sometimes cross-dressed. And now that was something to be alarmed about. And that's how Gerard got out of the draft.
1: Incidentally, on a side note here, I just want to point out That famed cult horror filmmaker, Ed Wood, director of Plan 9 from Outer Space, was actually a World War II hero, fighting valiantly. And the whole time, he he was wearing women's panties.
0: While studying at Florida Atlantic University, Schaefer met Martha Fogg, and the two would soon marry in 1969. It was a shared interest in creative writing that drew the two together. But almost immediately, the marriage began to fall apart due to what Gerard called an incompatible sex life.
1: Gerard would later say that he eventually told her to, quote unquote, put out or get out. Did I mention this guy's a scumbag? Like scumbag of the century material? Good. Well, Nancy chose to get out and left him. And good for her. Very, very wise choice.
0: Right, She's a smart lady, and he clearly sucks.
1: She, she's like the only one that stays alive.
0: Right? Smart. Very smart. During this time, though, Schaefer was still in contact with his first obsession. Lee Hanline, the girl next door, whom he'd often chat with on the phone. Lee had married Charles Bonadies, whom she also went to high school with. But apparently, she would still think of Gerard from time to time as the one who got away.
1: Lee's husband, Charles, didn't find her little chats with Gerard amusing. Especially when she'd hang up the phone, flush and giddy. Kind of understandable. I mean, this is her old boyfriend. Why is she still talking to him? and getting all hot and bothered. But Charles found it absurd to the point of hilarious and laughed right in her face when she told him Gerard was an undercover CIA agent and was going to get her a job paying $20,000 a year working for the CIA. Charles knew there was no way the inept, fumbling, and clumsy guy he'd known in high school was in the CIA.
0: But one day, Charles came home to find a note from Lee saying she'd gone to meet Gerard in Miami about that CIA job and she would never be seen again.
1: Gerard met Lee, then took his former neighbor and teenage obsession deep into the mangroves. He tied her spread eagle to two trees and raped her all night and into the morning. All the sick and depraved fantasies he'd had for so long coming to life in one glorious moment. But as dawn bloomed about him, he realized he had to get back to Florida Atlantic University for classes, and with deep regret at losing his precious toy, he looped a bit of cord around Lee's neck and strangled her then buried her in a shallow grave.
0: But Gerard couldn't stop thinking about her in a daze. Driving, he got so lost in his dark fantasies, he almost wrecked his car. And after classes, he sped back to the mangrove forest, ran to her grave, and dug up her corpse with his bare hands. Her body was cold and dirty, dark along her back where the blood was pooling, but she still smelled fresh and was pliable enough. She was almost better now, a human doll that wouldn't resist. He could do whatever he pleased with her, and he did.
1: Over the next few days, he continued returning to the corpse digging it up and reburying it again and again for his sexual gratification until she began to bloat and he accidentally punctured her bowels with the point of his shovel. At this point, the smell became unbearably grotesque and he did not return.
0: Meanwhile, Lee's husband, poor Charles, had grown irate, believing his wife had taken off to have an affair with Gerard. Eventually, with no one hearing from her at all, Lee's brother called Gerard inquiring about their meeting. And Gerard told her brother he dropped Lee off at the airport and that she had told him she was headed to Cincinnati. The police were called. And during their investigation into her disappearance, Gerard told them the same thing. The police wrote a report, but with no evidence of foul play, she was simply filed away as a missing person and forgotten about. Just another woman who ran off from her husband. To this day, her remains have never been discovered.
1: Shortly after this, Another woman, Carmen Marie Hallock, was telling her family how she had been offered a job with the government by a guy she'd recently met. Carmen was a beautiful cocktail waitress with a lot of personality. After a date with this mysterious man, she disappeared, never to be seen alive again. Again. While two of her teeth would later be discovered in a search of Gerard Schaefer's home, the rest of her remains wouldn't be discovered until nearly 10 years later in 1978 when construction began on a new housing development and land-moving equipment unearthed them.
0: Wait, did you just say they found two of her teeth in Gerard's house?
1: Yep. Uh. The guy who would uh, sue you if you called him a serial killer had the teeth of this woman as well as the IDs and jewelry of many many missing women in his house as well as actual photographs of women being tortured and written confessions that he would later call fictional creative writing but more on that later And Carmen wasn't the only cocktail waitress in the area who went missing at that time. But Linda Hutchins and her husband had an open marriage, openly seeing other people. She was also supposedly into kinky sex, bondage turning her on. Just want to say, nothing wrong with that between consensual adults. Like Carmen, she went out on a date and never returned home. But since the couple were known to drink and fight, police originally focused on the husband as a suspect. But when his alibi proved real and suspicion on him cleared, there was nowhere else to look. And she, like many other women, was just considered another missing person. Everywhere Gerard Schaefer went, women went missing, never to be seen again.
0: Gerard. Meanwhile, had found what he thought was his true calling. Being a teacher, children were the future. So what could be better than having power and control over them? He'd gone through teacher training in college and began a work placement internship at Plantation High School.
1: But his supervisor found him not only incredibly unprofessional, showing up unshaven and slovenly, and always leaving early, but incredibly dumb, with no knowledge whatsoever in the subject he was attempting to teach.
0: And, shockingly, the school was also getting calls from parents about Gerard. He was making the female students feel incredibly uncomfortable. And on November 7th, over a month before his internship ended, The school had decided to withdraw Mr. Schaefer from the program.
1: But this guy is nothing if not persistent. And somehow he manages to land another work placement internship as a teacher at another high school. This school, Stanahan High School, lets him go early as well. But they weren't as obtuse in their assessment. Now, I got my hands on the whole thing. I'll read you a little part of it. It's kind of hilarious.
0: Please do. Let's hear it.
1: My recommendations are as follows. In my opinion, Gerard Schaefer has not and will not complete the intern program in a satisfactory way. Mr. Schaefer impresses me as a student who is both defensive, fearing failure, and at the same time unwilling to exert himself to keep from failing. Despite his protestation that he is concerned and wants to be a good and influential teacher, he gives me the impression of a person seeking a safe, secure, easy niche where he will only be required to put out a minimum of effort. I would not advise anyone to hire Mr. Schaefer as a teacher. I do not think he knows any social studies subjects well enough to teach it. I do not think he has an adequate knowledge of the rudiments of teaching. And I do not think his attitude is that expected of a teacher. I request that you withdraw him from the internships assignment at Stranahan High School As soon as possible. I am concerned that Florida Atlantic University would even consider assigning a student with Mr. Schaefer's inadequacies to the intern program. I trust future interns will be more adequately prepared and more carefully screened. Sincerely, Richard Goodhart, Jr., Social Studies Department Head.
0: Whoa, I hope that the Social Studies Department gives Mr. Goodhart a raise because that was spot on. He's hey, like incredibly perceptive. Wow. he did not <laughs> He didn't pull any punches with that. And it's around this time that Gerard's mother divorced his father for extreme cruelty, chronic drunkenness, and adultery, which I think is a sign of what Gerard's home life must have been like. When he was a child.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now, a warning to our dear listeners and fellow freaks. Things are about to get very dark. Like, dark as a cave at midnight on a moonless night. Dark. And that's really dark if you didn't know.
0: Right. Yeah. Picture, picture something really bad and then something really worse.
1: Maybe I'll sing afterwards.
0: Oh, God. Please don't. <laughs> little Peggy ran and Wendy Stevenson both went to the Palmview Elementary School where they knew each other, but weren't exactly friends. Their uncles, though, were quite good friends. And on the 29th of December, the two uncles decided to take their nine year old nieces out for a day on the beach.
1: Peggy and Wendy played together in the sand for a while. But as the day began to warm up, the little girls started begging their uncles for ice cream. And of course, their uncles gave in and gave Peggy and Wendy a few bucks.
0: The two little girls strolled off the beach and onto the parking lot, where a nice, friendly gentleman offered to walk them across the street to a convenience store. And he even paid for their ice cream himself so the little girls could keep their money that their uncles had given them.
1: How great is that? The nice man then started walking them back to the beach, so sweet and charming, and to his car where he had to stop for just a minute. And why didn't the girls get out of the hot sun and jump in the back seat? That famous Florida sunshine was melting their ice creams pretty fast. Best to cool off in the shade a bit.
0: Oh, so... The little girls jumped into the back seat of Gerard John Schaefer's green Dotson.
1: Gerard Schaefer smiled as he engaged the child safety locks, started his car, and drove away from the beach. The two little girls in the back seat, frantically yelling for him to stop and asking where was he taking them.
0: I already hate it. (laughs) He took them deep into the mangroves.
1: Gerard found the experience different with children. Unlike grown women, they didn't understand what was going to happen to them. Wendy was more bewildered than terrified when he tied her to a tree and raped Peggy in front of her. She didn't seem to grasp the situation. And what was the point of doing a double if one of the witnesses didn't even understand what she was seeing?
0: In a moment of rage, he began to pummel Peggy with his fists, though he'd never hit any of his victims before. It was ropes and guns he'd previously enjoyed. And before he knew it, he'd beaten the little girl to death. She was just a tiny child after all. Disgusted, he got up and quickly finished Wendy off pulling the noose around her neck upwards until she suffocated.
1: He was disappointed. It just wasn't the same as it was with teenagers and grown women. But seeing Wendy hanging there like a tender piece of meat, he remembered reading about Albert Fish, a man he'd often obsessed over, and a strange desire came over him. He went to the girl, removed his hunting knife, and began to slice off what he considered prime cuts.
0: Later that night, he returned home, the house empty, now that Martha had left and divorced him. Lighting the stovetop, he placed a frying pan over the burner and attempted to cook his meat. But... He burned the first piece, trying to heat it too quickly. The next piece, he browned on the pan and then roasted in the oven. It came out edible, though chunks of gristle hung from the side due to his poor butchering skills. But Gerard ate it all, even mopping up the bit of blood that remained on the plate. He ate it all and later, as he laid down to sleep, he focused his mind on the flesh of that little girl churning in his guts how it was now a part of him being digested within him how he had consumed her in an act of ultimate domination.
1: Too many teardrops for one heart. To be crying.
0: <laughs> oh no, no, you murdered that song already. And now I'm going to have to ask you to stop desecrating you it. You
1: carry on.
0: Put it down. <laughs> oh, oh. At first, the police assumed Peggy Ron and Wendy Stevenson had drowned in the ocean. And they even sent divers looking for them. But. Both girls had been fine in the water earlier. And Wendy, in particular, was actually known to be a great swimmer. Their uncles swore they'd gone missing right from the beach. The police filed them as missing persons. Their bodies were never found.
1: Mm, (sighs) Now, a single free man in the dawn of the freewheeling 1970s. Gerard Schaefer decided to take a grand tour of the world, hitting the brothels of Europe, searching for the most kinky and violent. Then it was down into Africa where he sought out the most corrupt places he could, where the power of an American with a bit of money could get him access to all kinds of thrilling clubs that catered in bestiality and torture among other depraved pleasures.
0: When Gerard returned from his world tour of debauchery, he found work as a security guard, and it was here that he met his new wife, Teresa Dean.
1: They'd only been dating for a few months when he popped the question, but Teresa must have loved a man in uniform and a man with a badge because Gerard had finally found his calling. And was preparing for his new job as a, can you guess it, my fellow freaks? They know. Come on, you know. They know. A policeman. Surprise. that's right, everybody. Gerard got a job at the Wilton Manors Police Department.
0: This wasn't Gerard's first choice. He'd originally applied as a deputy for the Boward County Sheriff's Department. He did great with the aptitude tests, but failed the psychology tests and was deemed too unstable. Can you believe it?
1: Surprise, surprise.
0: Another surprise. But hey, Beckers can't be choosers. At 25 years old, Gerard John Schaefer was now a fully employed officer of the law.
1: Whoopee. At first, Gerard came off very impressive. He had a great knowledge of previous cases, almost as if he'd been studying them. Almost. Seeing where criminals went wrong and how they got caught. And he showed valor and courage on the raid of a drug house and received a commendation.
0: Gerard would have barbecues at his house and invite the other officers and their families. One of those he became friendly with was Officer Lowe, who had a pretty teenage daughter named Debra. Gerard took a particular interest in this teenager. She was the epitome of the girls he'd fantasized about in high school.
1: With her large eyes and dark hair, she fit perfectly with Gerard's victim profile. And on the morning of February 29th, 1972, as Deborah Sue Lowe walked to Rickards Middle School, she vanished into thin air. Her school books were discovered lying in the street only a block from her home, as if someone had been waiting there for her.
0: Many in the police wrote her off as a runaway, but Gerard surprised everyone by how hard he rallied around his friend, Officer Lowe, leading searches, helping his friend look for his missing daughter. But tragically, she was never heard from or seen again. Just another young girl filed away in the missing person files of Florida.
1: It wasn't too long before the true personality of Gerard John Schaefer became apparent to the Wilton Manor's police department. After all, he was the narcissistic scumbag of the century. Besides behaving inappropriately, such as using foul language around citizens and being just plain weird, it was discovered he had been making traffic stops on attractive women, running them through the computer system to gain their contact information, then either calling them or just showing up on their doorsteps, demanding that they date him. And when confronted over this, Gerard, he didn't see the big deal and told his boss that his dating habits were none of his business. Oh, lordy, this guy. So he was fired for grossly inappropriate conduct.
0: And if only it had been that easy. But just like that teaching internship, You just can't keep a clinical narcissist down. And this guy is tenacious. He writes himself a glowing letter of recommendation from Wilton Manor's police department and applies across the state in Stewart, Florida, for a deputy job in the Martin County Sheriff's Department. And he gets the job.
1: Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he uproots his family, including his ailing mother, and they move to Stewart, Florida. Gerard worked hard at keeping his true self, the depraved monster inside him, tamped down. But it didn't take long for the vile scumbag serial killer he was to eventually show itself. And show itself it did. In a way, the hidden part of Gerard Schaefer had never been exposed before. The monster that was Gerard Schaefer would be revealed to both the Martin County Sheriff's Office and the entire world by two young girls innocently hitchhiking to the beach.
0: 18 year old Pamela Wells and 17 year old Nancy Trotter were on summer vacation and had only been in Stewart, Florida one day when they were stopped by a sheriff's deputy as they hitchhiked to the beach on July 21st, 1972. They'd originally tried walking, but didn't realize just how far the beach was from the hostel they'd rented a room in, or how hot the Florida sun was going to get as they tromped down the blazing asphalt. So, they gave in to Impulse and stuck their thumbs out for a ride. It was the 70s, after all, and everyone was doing it.
1: The deputy informed them that hitchhiking was illegal, and it was not illegal at all. He's a lying piece of shit.
0: Of course he is. But in an act of kindness, he drove them back to their hostel.
1: Gerard presented himself as the friendly law officer and even offered to pick them up in the morning and drive them to the beach, warning them of the dangers of hitchhiking.
0: The girls readily took him up on his offer for a free ride to the beach. But when they met at the appointed place in the morning, they were surprised to see him in his street clothes and in a civilian car. But Gerard explained he was still on duty, He was just undercover for the day.
1: I think this guy lied more easily than he told the truth.
0: Yeah, that's like reflexive for him at this point. Gerard deviated from his route to the beach, though, and insisted on taking them to see what he called an old Spanish fort deep in the mangroves near Hutchinson Island, explaining to the two that he used to be a history teacher. And that they would find this fascinating. But the fort was just a dilapidated shed. And by the time they arrived, his demeanor had changed from friendly to disturbing. As his lectures on the dangers of hitchhiking turned to tales of being abducted and sold as sex slaves.
1: When the girls grew uneasy and began to demand he take them back to the beach, He just smiled and pulled his service revolver on them, demanding they place their hands behind their back. He snapped handcuffs on each of their wrists and gagged them, walking them at gunpoint deeper into the Everglades. He told them this was their own fault, that this is what they got for taunting him with their bodies from the side of the road, that he was going to sell them as sex slaves To the highest bidder. When Pamela twisted her ankle on a mangrove root and let out a yelp, he told her she'd sell for extra because they love a squealer. He took them to a clearing. He'd already prepared with ropes and nooses hanging from the branches of two trees. He had them perch themselves up on the tall exposed roots of the mangrove trees then slipped the nooses over their heads, pulling them taut, so that the girls were forced to precariously balance on the roots. One slip on the slick surface and they'd hang and choke to death. As he worked, he delighted in telling the terrified girls how he was going to rape and torture them. He bound their legs in rope, completing his bondage fantasies. And as he stood back, admiring his handiwork his police radio suddenly cackled to life there was an emergency and he was to immediately report to the station shit he told the girls i gotta go but warned them not to try to get away
0: schaefer was gone a long time many hours and during that time Nancy and Pamela were able to slowly work free of their bonds and managed to slip their heads free from the nooses around their necks. It was a time-consuming and agonizing struggle. One slip, and they'd tumble off the elevated route they perched on and hang to death.
1: Schaefer was devastated when he returned hours later to find the girls gone. I mean, can you imagine... Don't you hate that?
0: Worst. (laughs) He immediately went home and called his boss, Sheriff Robert Crowder, telling him,
1: i done something very foolish. You'll be mad at me.
0: Oopsie. He told the sheriff that he was just trying to teach two hitchhikers a lesson by taking them out to the swampland of Hutchinson Island. And from there... Things had just gotten out of control.
1: Sheriff Crowder and Lieutenant Melvin Waldron raced to Florida State Road A1A where they immediately discovered a desperate, partially gagged teenage girl flailing in the Indian River. Her hands cuffed behind her back. This was Nancy Trotter. Pamela Wells had already been discovered and rescued by a good Samaritan trucker.
0: Despite his protestations that he'd just been trying to teach the young girls a lesson in the horrors of hitchhiking.
1: He had obviously done that. Obviously.
0: Schaefer was formally fired and placed under arrest for false imprisonment and aggravated assault.
1: But don't worry because he's soon out on bail. And reportedly, His wife at the time believed his story and noticed no change at all in his demeanor, which is really spooky. This just shows that he is like wearing this mask of normality. And uh, while waiting for trial, Gerard, he was a busy boy. After all, I guess who knew he might end up in prison and he needed to get his kicks before the trial.
0: At an adult education center in Fort Lauderdale, Schaefer had met Susan Place, 17 years old, and Georgia Marie Jessup, only 16 years old. The two girls were close friends. Schaefer introduced himself to them as Jerry Shepard and claimed to be from Colorado. He presented himself as this worldly hippie, and engage Georgia with talk about her fascination in ESP and reincarnation.
1: One day, Susan's mother came home to find a strange man in his 20s there with her young daughter and her friend, Georgia. He introduced himself as Jerry and told her he was a teacher and was going to chaperone the girls to the beach to play guitar and that they'd all be back before too long. But something didn't sit right about this Jerry with Susan's mother. And she made sure to jot down the license plate number of his Datsun as he pulled away. Neither of the girls were ever to be seen alive again.
0: In fact, during this period, while Gerard awaited trial, a number of young girls went missing and always in pairs.
1: There was Mary Bricolina. 14 and her friend, Elsie Lena, 13, who had vanished hitchhiking in October 1972 in Fort Lauderdale. It was later revealed that Mary often visited the apartment of a friend where she'd met a Gary Shepherd, who claimed to be an ex-Wilton Manors police officer.:
0: And there was Colette Marie Goodenough and her friend Barbara Ann Wilcox both 19 and beautiful, who disappeared hitchhiking to Florida. Their skeletal remains were eventually discovered by a large tree and orange crate in 1977. It appeared that they had been bound, suspended by the tree, and made to stand on the orange crate.
1: Huh. Mm. And then uh, in December of 1972... Gerard Schaefer was finally brought to court for the abduction of Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter. In a plea bargain his lawyer had arranged, Schaefer was able to plead guilty to just one charge of aggravated assault, for which he received a sentence of one year in jail with the possibility of parole in six months. Not bad. The judge said,
0: it is beyond the court's imagination to conceive how you were such a foolish and astronomic jackass.
1: Leaving the courthouse, Schaefer said, I made a stupid mistake, but there was no sex involved and no one got hurt. That's so Gerard. Classic. Mm. Such an asshole. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
0: Now you may remember that Susan Place's mother had written down the license plate of the car that drove off with her daughter on that terrible night. She gave it to investigators, as well as a description of the man, but the registration was traced to a completely different make and model of car, registered to a man who in no way resembled this Jerry Shepard character. So, the girls were filed as missing persons and assumed to be runaways.
1: Then... In 1972, while Gerard was serving his sentence, Susan's mother discovered a letter in her daughter's room from this Jerry Shepard. There was a return address, and when she went there, the landlord told her the property had been rented to a Gerard Schaefer, who was now serving a prison sentence for the abduction and attempted hanging of two teenage girls.
0: Susan's mother also realized that investigators must have incorrectly assumed the license plate number she gave them was to a vehicle registered in Pinellas County, not Martin County. When she contacted the investigators and told them this, they reran the license plate. It came up as belonging to a green Dotson registered to one Gerard Schaefer.
1: On April 1st, a father and son, searching for aluminum cans, discovered a shallow grave containing the remains of both Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. The girls were no longer considered runaways. The location, only six miles from where Trotter and Wells had been held captive before freeing themselves.
0: From scraps of rope, investigators were able to determine the girls had been bound, and markings on a large banyan tree suggested that the girls had been suspended from it. The initials G.J. had been carved into the trunk of the tree.
1: A search warrant was made for Gerard John Schaefer's two residences, something that in my humble opinion should have been done much earlier. Like when he abducted two girls and left them in the Everglades with nooses around their necks, saying he'd be right back to rape and torture them. As we'll see, if this had been done, many young girls would still be alive.
0: To truly delve into the items found in Schaefer's residences and dissect them, follow the clues to where they came from, would take an entire episode, maybe even two or three. Shit. Since you could probably dedicate an entire podcast series to them, we're just going to give you as much as we can with the time that we have.
1: The Broward County search, which I want to note is where his mother lived, found just an insane amount of evidence and bizarre artifacts. There were 11 guns, bags filled with both spent and live cartridges, 13 hunting knives, Sections of rope and scores of pornographic magazines, which Gerard had modified by drawing in nooses and ropes to show the women bound and hanging. He also drew in streams of urine and defecation coming from their bodies. They also found 37 black and white Polaroid photographs showing women hanging by their necks and being mutilated. Looking at the undergrowth in these photographs, they appear that they were taken in Davie, Florida. But the focus was insufficient to identify any of the women. Other Polaroids were of Gerard himself, dressed in female clothing, hanging from trees with fecal matter spread across his buttocks. Now, the serial killer Dennis Rader known as BTK or Bind Torture Kill, he used to do things as well, just like this, both modifying pictures of women to make them appear in bondage and being tortured, as well as posing in women's clothing while in a state of bondage. Those photographs, by the way, are, are terrifying. You can just Google it and they'll pop right up.
0: Can't put them on Instagram.
1: I don't
0: know. No, <laughs> definitely not.
1: Instagram doesn't like me. I don't know.
0: You should definitely so, really uh, not do that.
1: Okay, don't no. don't put it on Instagram, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, would you care to take a crack at the psychology going on here, Sarah, with both uh, BTK and Schaefer
0: modifying the magazines? I guess I see as a defense mechanism known as sublimation, psychoanalytic in origin. That term, sublimation, refers to transforming socially unacceptable ideations into more socially acceptable actions or behaviors. An example, I guess, would be creating this art. I'm putting that in air quotes, listeners, that reminds you of ways in which you have or want to mutilate or torture women, all while maintaining this plausible deniability. Like It's just some drawings, right? unless you also keep photos. I think we see the same thing in Schaefer's own writings, but we'll go ahead and come back to that. As for the cross-dressing in this particular instance, I think that's probably a reflection of Schaefer's jealousy of women due to the favoritism that his dad showed to his sisters in their early childhood, as well as his personal shame and self-loathing that came from feelings of being rejected himself. And keep in mind, this is just speculation based on statements that Schaefer personally made. There's no kink-shaming here at Murder Coaster. But for Schaefer, this whole situation seems very Freudian, doesn't it?
1: Yes, ma'am, it does. They also found a letter from an Australian friend of Schaefer's, whom he had met in Morocco in 1970, there were scores of Polaroids from this individual, taken up of a village in Sahara. Excuse me. The two had visited this village following a Wog massacre. Many of the images depicted women disemboweled and mutilated with knives and axes.
0: And there were numerous pieces of jewelry, passports, and clothing belonging to missing women including a gold locket inscribed Lee that was determined to belong to Lee Hangline, Schaefer's old neighbor and teenage obsession who'd gone missing in 1969, as well as the driver's license of Barbara Wilcox and Colette Goodenough's passport. Teeth and sections of bone were also found and later identified as belonging to at least eight Of his victims.
1: There was also the writings. Over 300 pages. Detailing the. Kidnapping. Humiliation. Rape. And execution. Of young women. He labeled as. Whores. Sluts. And harlots. As well as his fascination with. Necrophilia. And feces. Many of the stories were later published. And you can read them yourself if you can stumble it. it, but we'll get into that later.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I would pay not to read those. You almost threw up as you were thinking about it. I could hear it.
1: Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're, it's, oh, they're nasty. We'll get into it.
0: And this The search of Schaefer's Martin County residence yielded less physical evidence, but there was still plenty, all of it significant including a plastic capsule containing two human teeth beside his bed. These are the teeth that would later be found to have come from Carmen Halleck, who we mentioned earlier. They found knives and guns, of course, and a blood-stained white pillowcase. In his writings, Gerard had shown a fetish for white pillowcases specifically in the use of them as execution hoods during hangings.
1: On May 18th, Schaefer was formally charged with first-degree murder for the killing of Place and Jessup. Schaefer claimed he was innocent, and the accusations were just a mistake. When the trial began in September of 1973, capital punishment had been declared unconstitutional by the Florida Supreme Court. So prosecutors could only seek life imprisonment. After a long and contentious trial, the jury deliberated for only five hours and 10 minutes before returning with two verdicts of first-degree murder.
0: Now, remember Sandra London? the girl Gerard had dated briefly in high school, who found him mysterious. She'd gone on to become an aspiring true crime writer, rekindling her romance with the convicted murderer. She encouraged Gerard to write about his crimes and fantasies, but to do it under the banner of fiction. Just like Ted Bundy had done with his confessions, if he wrote in the third person. He'd have plausible deniability, saying he was only talking about these things on a theoretical level. The two were engaged. Oh, happy lovebirds. Yay. Eh, It's not (laughs) cute. She published these quote-unquote stories in 1989 under the title Killer Fiction, following up with an expanded version called Beyond Killer Fiction in 1991.
1: And then with notoriety writing credits and a bit of cash under her belt Sandra immediately dumped Gerard
0: bye Gerard yeah,
1: later because she's got it the hots for serial killer Danny Rollins the Gainesville Ripper e. proclaiming her undying love to him as she penned his memoir and confessions he's he's a he's a piece of work too
0: uh- think we'll probably talk about him eventually right
1: probably yeah uh, he, he went on he tried to be a country singer too and you can find uh tapes of his songs out there
0: oh please don't sing them for us
1: <laughs> you know i'm going to i know you will
0: at least i don't love them before you ruin them <laughs> over the years shaver had written many revealing letters to sandra confessing to many of his crimes And describing them in detail. Puke. Barf. Imagine getting those
1: letters.
0: (laughs) So he told Sandra in no uncertain terms that if she ever disclosed any of those letters or their contents, he would have her killed either by the Ku Klux Klan or the Dixie Mafia claiming both were huge fans of his, which is a claim I find dubious at best.
1: But Sandra London is a firecracker. Give credit where it's due. And she immediately sent the death threats and all the letters outlining his guilt to the police.
0: Good on her.
1: Right? And Gerard Schaefer, whom we mentioned earlier, just loved suing people promptly added her to the long list of authors and journalists he had papers served to. But like almost all the other suits, it was thrown out of court.
0: And very benevolently, we (laughs) initially decided that we would read all these stories for you, dear freaks. But I'll have you know, I randomly flipped open the book and I read one page And immediately afterwards, I just yelled, what a terrible day to know how to read. And then I had to go and take like (laughs) 10 showers Mm -hmm. in like rapid succession. And that was not enough. So then I had to go in the basement and pour like whole cups of bleach directly into my own eyes. Yeah, yeah. It was important that, uh, that I feel clean after this. But no, it didn't work. I was still, like, irrevocably filthy. And so now, because I was effectively blind, I had to call Matthew and be like, can you please fall on this literary grenade for me? I need you to read the rest of the 299 pages all by yourself. And now, Matthew, you've finished reading these horrible stories by Gerard by now, haven't you?
1: Unfortunately, yes.
0: And you're a writer. For those out there, Matthew's written some amazing shit, by the way. Mm. If you're not familiar, go and look him up. Thanks. Oh, you freaking rock. Um, Mm. And I know you publish book reviews as well. So I hate to ask, but (laughs) would you care to give us a critique on Gerard Schaefer's writings?
1: If you wish it, sure. First, I would describe his work as amateurish and lazy lacking any type of complexity. And I found his themes utterly revolting, apparent, and absolutely disgusting. And like you said, reading it left me feeling just dirty, as well as profoundly sad. But I'll try to find some positive stuff. So Gerard Schaefer definitely has a tone and even a voice in his prose. It's this tough guy, Noir thing, the macho man who's been around the block and knows a thing or two about life. Something you'd see in a hard-boiled detective novel, very noir. And he does have a few good turns of phrase. So the writing has some style and flair. And there's also a sense of irony, especially in his endings. He's trying to go for this O. Henry ironic twist. But... None of his stories are actually stories at all. They're just vignettes, sick and brutal vignettes of his crimes and fantasies of raping and abusing women, both dead and alive. And actually mostly dead. He's obsessed with excrement, urine, and bodily fluids in general. Nearly every story has a erotic scene where the killer runs his hand up the silky leg of a dead woman looking to find the feces she's left in her underwear. He's obsessed with this to the point that in one story, he takes a corpse, places it on a toilet seat that he's balanced between a couple boards and slips beneath it, playing with her ass and vagina as he imagines her defecating and pissing on him. Like I said, it's absolutely disgusting stuff that almost always ends up describing the scent of a bloated corpse left in the Florida heat.
0: I need another shower.
1: <laughs> but the most important critique is he doesn't understand story or plot at all or character, for that matter. Basically, what a story is, a story is about a character character Wanting something, a character who desires an outcome. The obstacles in that person's way are what make the narrative structure. This is what they call in creative writing Freytag's pyramid. It's a rising upward tension that crescendos with a climax and is then followed by a falling tension and a resolution or a denouement. How one reacts to those obstacles reveals the character so in the writings of john schaefer what do the protagonists of these stories want they want to kill and torture women and what are the obstacles in their way none there's never any obstacles in their way which means there is not only no story but no character development and why are there no obstacles in the way Because John Schaefer is not so secretly writing about himself, and he sees himself and his crimes as flawless, perfect. So it's really his own ego, it's his narcissism that makes him a bad writer. Also, to be a good writer, you must have a lot of empathy, a lot of sympathy, so much so that you can project it onto fictional characters. All the characters, even the villains, Gerard Schaeffer obviously has no empathy or sympathy for anyone but himself, who he sees as perfect. The villains in Schaeffer's story are the women, or whores as he calls them, and he describes them as nothing but pieces of meat, both literally and figuratively. While he can go on for paragraphs about the look and shape of a woman's breasts or ass, never once does he mention what kind of music she listens to, what books she reads, what's her favorite food, the most basic and primitive characteristics of a person. His psychopathy and sociopathy are just glaringly obvious, as well as being misogynistic to the point of almost sounding like an incel manifesto, his writing is also incredibly racist and homophobic, using slur after slur after slur, which combines with the overall ickiness of his obsession with fecal matter and urine to create a foul miasma of privileged white male disgustingness that leaves the reader feeling wretched, wretched, and unclean for having even read it.
0: So, basically, a generic noir pro style. No storyline. No character. And they're all absolutely disgusting. And they're filled with racism and misogyny. Mm-hmm. Is yep. this a recommendation?
1: <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, no redeeming value. Even on a psychological level, they're so obvious. There's like no mystery to unpuzzle. He doesn't cloak his feelings or disguise them. He also adorns some of his stories with drawings, which I found revealing. The women, as you would expect from this scumbag, have large, perfect breasts and incredibly thin waists. But while they're mostly entirely faceless, the meaning of which is self-evident, he doesn't see them as human, there is a delicacy and beauty to their bodies, a gracefulness to their neck, their collarbones and shoulders. Their arms are long and elegant, their calves well-shaped, while the men that he draws are just lumps. They have no necks, just a head like a lump of clay squashed on the shapeless shoulders. The arms hang down, half-formed and flaccid. And even though the women are faceless, and often hanging from nooses, they're obviously the superior gender in the drawings, though they're also something he feels compelled to degrade and destroy, which makes me think of Gerard's early childhood, his feeling that his father preferred his sisters to him, and his urge to appear female to gain his father's affection. Yeah, I guess you could say this narcissistic scumbag is a piece of work.
0: But John Wayne Gacy loved them. And he wrote Gerard a blurb saying, Schaefer's writing is good. It's graphic and keeps the reader wanting more.
1: Great. A blurb from the killer clown himself. Well, you know, I guess there's fans out there for everybody.
0: Such an endorsement.
1: (laughs) As I said in the beginning of this episode, this sad, evil, narcissistic, and sadistic scumbag is dead now. While he was eagerly awaiting a parole hearing in 2016, suing anyone and everyone who possibly stood in his way, he didn't even make it to the millennium.
0: Schaefer was stabbed to death in his cell on December 3rd, 1995. He'd been stabbed over 40 times in the face, head, neck, and body, and had his throat cut.
1: I've seen a picture of it. His face isn't even recognizable as human. It's really gnarly.
0: Why he was so brutally murdered is also a bit of a mystery.
1: Prison officials claim it was over a cup of hot water. Others say it was because he was a rapist and child killer. Seems likely. Yeah, it makes sense. (laughs) Some claim it was because he was a narc and it helped bring down a huge pedophile and child pornography ring while in prison. And he'd actually done that. It's well-documented. It it seems heroic at first, but then you start to ask yourself, how did he know about this pedophile and child pornography ring? How do you know about it so well? you're like, Uh, Oh, yeah. So gross. Others said he was murdered because he'd spent time with Otis Toole, who had told him details about the infamous murder of Adam Walsh. And when Toole recanted his original confession, he ordered a hit on Schaefer to ensure he wouldn't rat.
0: You know what they say. Snitches get stitches.
1: Or their throat slit, eyes gouged out, And over 40 knife wounds to the face, neck, and torso, leaving one unrecognizable as human.
0: Or that. (laughs) Well, that's it for today. Oh, thank
1: God. That was so, that was a tough one.
0: That was a lot.
1: It really was.
0: Oh. So, thankfully, for everybody here at home, that's it for today, fellow freaks. Thank you so much for listening. And. Be sure to tune in next week for more tales of murder and mayhem here on Murder Coaster.
1: Hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at Podcast at gmail.com That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.